0: In my uh, former years, <laughs> uh, a long time ago, um, I was a, a student ministries pastor. Um, and oftentimes, as a student ministries pastor, what I would do was I would go and visit uh, local high schools, local senior high uh, schools. Um, so I want you to imagine with me, just for a moment, <laughs> um, that uh, you are one of those high school students, okay? Okay. Some of us that might be easy to imagine. For others, it might be a little bit harder. But try as hard as you can. Imagine you are a high school student, and you're sitting down at the, in the lunchroom with your group of friends at your table. You know, it's usually the same table every day, every lunch period, and you're sitting there with your, with your group of friends at, at your lunch table. And then I, as your youth pastor, <laughs> come walking into that lunchroom, Okay? Now, this is a participation question I'm going to ask you. What's your very first response? Embarrassed. Embarrassed. What else? I'm on. I'm not hearing anything. Hi. Hi. How about what are you doing here? Uh, you know, uh, every time that I would walk into those lunchrooms, uh, the senior high students they would look at me. Uh, you know, they, they'd seen me in the context of the church, they'd seen me in the context of different activities and different retreats. And every time they had, they, they hadn't seen me, and got used to me coming to their school, coming to their school lunchroom. And every time they would say, "What are you doing here? What are you doing here?" Um, that was their response. Every time. And can I tell you how I felt every time? Every time. I always felt out of place. I always felt like, um, well, like I didn't belong. Um, (laughs) Like I didn't fit. Um, Have you ever felt that way? Uh, Like you uh, didn't belong, like you didn't fit. Ever felt that way? Um, Living in this world as a follower of Jesus Christ. Like you're out of place. Like you were in exile living in a foreign land. (laughs) I read the newspaper, uh, you know, Star Tribune is a regular habit of mine, just kind of keeping in touch with what's happening around Minneapolis, St. Paul. And many times, I got to tell you, I set that paper down and I wonder, what kind of (laughs) world do we live in? I read about a senseless Senseless violence and the murder of a 14-year-old on Memorial Day. And I ask, how can this be? I turn off the TV. You know, after after surfing the worthless shows that highlight murder and promiscuity and uh, downright stupidity. <laughs> and I say, I mean, how low can we sink? In recent years, I want to suggest that our society has become more and more uncomfortable for people of faith. In a Christianity Today article, Harold O.J. Brown, pointing to the changes in our culture, the changes in Supreme Court decisions, to trends in our schools and our universities, he writes this Much of the nation has been or has recently become, in essence, anti Christian anti-Jewish, anti-natural law, and implicitly or explicitly pagan. Pagan meaning godless. Over the years, uh, we have continued to see the erosion um, in our American culture of the very concept of God and and truth and and the basic reality and, and, and wisdom of the Bible. I mean, people used to believe in in sin, even if they didn't believe that they themselves um, were helpless sinners. Today, few people believe that. People were educated in basic uh, Christian thought framework with the Christian view of heaven and and hell and a a basic knowledge of the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount Ask your neighbor about any of those subjects today and most likely all you're going to receive back is a blank stare. In his 1978, think about that, 1978 Harvard commencement address, Alexander Solzhenitsyn uttered words that made him forever politically incorrect. (laughs) He said, men have forgotten God. Friends, I got to tell you, I'm afraid that that's the kind of world that we live in today. A world that has forgotten God. A world that is post-Christian. So how do we do that? How do we live in that kind of, of world? How do we live as God's people in a world that's becoming much more difficult and much more hostile towards followers of Jesus Christ? Now, throughout Scripture, the people of God are frequently presented as sojourners in exile. In fact, the Apostle Peter, in his very first letter, starts his letter with these words. He says, to those who are elect exiles, (laughs) that's us, elect exiles, that's who we are. We are exiles, people living in, in a foreign land, strangers in this world. We find ourselves um, without easy answers to unique challenges and questions that you face, I face every day in our post-Christian world. So what we did as a staff, a pastoral team, is we decided, you know what, We, we need to address some of these questions. So we went out and we asked this past May, Um, Some in our church, maybe you were one of them that received that questionnaire. What questions that you might have, that you might be struggling with as an exile trying to live in our world today? We received back a variety of questions. (laughs) And our hope is that we're going to try to address um, some of those questions this summer. Each week for the months of June and July... We're going to attempt to biblically answer some of those questions that came up, that were were brought up. Questions in a series called Questions from Exile. Okay? So this morning, what I want to do is I want to set the stage by simply trying to answer the question, How do I live as an exile in this world? And we're going to do we're going to do we're going to take a quick look at three biblical stories, three different stories from individuals in scripture who found themselves living as exiles. We're going to try learning some lessons from them. The first story is that one of Daniel my guess is if I'd asked you what story would would you ever look at in, in when you're trying to answer answer this question, it would have been the story of Daniel. You and I were familiar with this story. Story of Daniel, you know, usually we think of Daniel, we think of it as a book full of uh, these great adventures, you know, the story of the lion's den and the, the fiery furnace. But I gotta tell you, in reality, I think God included <laughs> this story in his holy scriptures because it teaches us how to live and thrive in the most godless of environments. Now, find your way to Daniel if you can. It's in the Old Testament, near the end of the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. And while you're turning there, I I want you to just think about Daniel. Think about Daniel for a moment. Think about Daniel before Babylon. Um, One day, Daniel was sitting there... (laughs) Um, on a couch, probably in the palace of uh, Jerusalem and, and he seemed to have it all I mean life was on the the easy street. He was a member of the royal family he was a, probably the teacher 's pet um, he, he was the first pick you know on the playground uh, playground games I mean he was the kind of young man that everyone looked up to. Daniel was the cream of the crop. <laughs> And his future appeared to be bright. And then suddenly, like that, he became a prisoner of war. A nobody. Being dragged off in chains to an enemy kingdom. And listen, that wasn't just just any old enemy kingdom. No, it was the evil kingdom of Babylon. And when it comes to evil, I got to tell you... Babylon had no equal. I mean, Babylon's king was a godless ruler named Nebuchadnezzar. Um, In fact, he was so godless that after conquering Jerusalem, what Nebuchadnezzar did was he took some holy items from um, God's temple there in Jerusalem and brought them back to Babylon in order to put them on display in the temple of his God, the demonic God, um, Marduk. It was Nebuchadnezzar's way of publicly mocking the God of Israel. Not only were Daniel and his three friends living under the rule of this godless king now, but they were also being indoctrinated into a godless educational system, okay? See, after they get to Babylon, these four Israelite young men are chosen for a special three-year training program. Why? (laughs) so they could be taught Babylonian wisdom and culture and, and religion. Which means that they were being trained to be enchanters and magicians and experts in the dark practices of the occult. But see, that wasn't even the worst of it. Not only was the king cruel and the education godless, but the Babylonian culture was... Fiercely hostile to the spiritual values of Daniel and his three buddies. <laughs> um, I mean, one of the first things that happened to them uh, when they got to Babylon was they had to endure a name change. The name Daniel means God is my judge. Now catch this. His Babylonian captors change it to Belshazzar, which means Bel's prince. Bel was a title for their demonic god, Marduk. The Babylonians would would use that title, Bel, much in the same way that we would today use the title Lord. So it was, you got to imagine, it had to grate on Daniel, don't you think? Every time that he heard that name Belchazzar used, I'm going to be like calling a modern day person who had the name Christian and changing his name to Satan. (laughs) And the same thing happened to his three friends. Each of their names were changed into a blatant attempt to blot out any connection they had to their homeland and to their God. And then on top of all of that, even the food that they were being served, think about this, attacked their faith. As men in, wise men in training, Daniel and his three friends were to be fed from the king's table. Quite a privilege, really. We're not exactly sure what all of the king's table included, the type of foods, but I, I got to guess that uh, some of it, if not all of it, <laughs> Uh, was non-kosher food, (laughs) Um, foods that had been expressly forbidden in the law of Moses. And most likely, it was a food also that had been included in idol worship there in Babylon. Either way, you got to think that this new diet was a spiritual assault against Daniel's values and God's laws. Add to it all, add it all up. Catch this. And Daniel and his three friends, think about this. They are living in a, a terribly hostile, evil world. Yet somehow, when you read that book of Daniel, when you read about Daniel's story, somehow these four guys, they, they flourish. These four guys, they, they, they thrive. How do they do it? What can we learn from them that will help us be able to live as exiles, to be able to flourish, to be able to thrive as exiles in our post-Christian world? Well, I think Daniel gives us the first insight down in chapter 1, verse 8. Look with me, chapter 1, verse 8 of Daniel. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with wine that he drank. Um, Daniel resolved to be faithful to his God. It's also interesting to me that Daniel and his three friends, think about this, they didn't object to their names being changed. You don't read about that. You don't hear about them objecting, in fact, to them sitting in that that godless classroom and being taught about the occult and, and, and the Babylonian ways. But when it comes to them giving up their distinctive identity, their Jewish identity of their traditional food laws, there would be no compromise. Although God has, had allowed them to live in Babylon, Daniel was resolved not to let Babylon live in him. Do you catch that? God had allowed them to live in Babylon. In fact, it had taken them there. But Daniel and his three friends were resolved not to let Babylon live in them. He refused to allow his commitment to God to drift. So Daniel made a decision a decision to remain faithful to God and his word. That's where we live out our trust, isn't it? It's in our decisions. Do you know that, on average, um, you make 70 decisions a day? That's 25,000 decisions a year when you add it all up. And if it's over 70 years, that means it's 1,788,000 or 500,000 in a lifetime. Each one of these decisions that over 1 million are opportunities to trust God. Each one of those decisions, each day, 70 a day, each one of them are an opportunity to honor God, to be faithful to God or not. But listen, just in case you begin to think that, hey, as long as I remain faithful to God, as long as I make those correct decisions, everything is going to be solved. All my problems are going to go away. We need to notice that Daniel's resolve to be faithful to his God wasn't without risk. Notice the risk of Daniel's faithfulness, in fact, caught in the chief um, of the guards' response to Daniel's request here uh, for a different diet. Look with me, chapter 1, verse 10. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head? With the king? (laughs) Translation. The king will literally take my head off and yours, he tells him, if I don't keep you, his prize, captives in top-notch shape. Talk about living in a hostile world. See, faithfulness, I mean, faithfulness to God could could result in, in, in you losing your head or being thrown into a fiery furnace. Remember later on in Daniel's story, uh, three friends, they have to decide whether they're going to bow down and worship this Babylonian idol or whether they're going to remain faithful to God. What do they choose? They choose to remain faithful to God and the result is they're thrown into that fiery furnace, right? Listen, when you think about it that way, when you put it in that context, we don't live in such a bad world, right? Here in the United States. I mean, you're probably not going to lose your head. (laughs) Probably not going to be thrown into a fiery furnace if you continue to be faithful in following Christ. But I do have to tell you that following Christ could still cost you. It could still cost you. It could cost you a job. It could cost you a promotion. It could cost you... Your reputation cost you a a relationship? Decisions to be faithful, to be a witness, to not sin, to to be holy can involve enormous risks, friends. How do we live as exiles in this world? I think Daniel would tell us the first lesson is simply to resolve to remain faithful to God. God despite the risks. Let's look at a second story. This story comes from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29. We read the passage earlier in our service that we're going to look at. Again, I got to remind you, the situation in Jeremiah 29 when we get here is that God's people are exiles in Babylon. The Babylonians following their military strategy after capturing Jerusalem, what they've done is they've taken the brightest and and the best back with them to Babylon for the purpose of indoctrinating them, for the purpose of assimilating them into their culture and helping them lose their distinctive identity. So what are these exiles, these, these people of God, what are they instructed to do? Well, You know, without looking at the passage, you might have expected God to tell them, well, listen, you're in Babylon there, just hunker down, you know, isolate yourself. Have nothing to do with that wicked city and with those pagan people. (laughs) But instead, they get this incredible letter um, from God through the prophet Jeremiah, who, by the way, Jeremiah, by the way, he's still back in Jerusalem, Evidently, um, Jeremiah, uh, the Babylonians didn't consider him important enough to take with them to Babylon, so he's still there in, in, in Jerusalem, and he writes these uh, uh, Israelites, this Jewish group that's been taken to Babylon, he writes them a letter from the word of God that's absolutely shocking to them. Because in it, Jeremiah describes what the people of God's relationship to this great pluralistic pagan city should be look with me i'm going to read it again chapter 29 jeremiah 29 verse 4 thus says the lord of hosts the god of israel to all of the exiles whom i have sent into exile from jerusalem to babylon build houses and live in them plant gardens and eat their produce Essentially, God tells them to work for the city's peace and prosperity. He tells them to live in that city and to, and to settle down there in that place, get involved in the community, have families, um, build houses, and uh, live in them. I mean, it kind of can, sounds like a model from Habitat for Humanity, isn't it? And they're not just to build houses, but they're also to build a garden. They're to to landscape the yards. And then down in verse seven, God tells them, Hey, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That word welfare there is repeated three times. You catch that in that one verse? Three times. That word welfare means shalom. Um, Seek the shalom of the city, for in its shalom you will find shalom. Shalom is a comprehensive peace. More than the absence of conflict and death, says Clifford Green, this rich term shalom fills out the word community by embracing well-being and contentment wholeness health prosperity prosperity safety and rest shalom means order harmony and happiness it means that all is right with the city we are to seek the shalom the peace and prosperity of our community of our city um God is commanding us as Christ followers to do anything and everything to further the public good, to use our resources to make the the city a great place for everyone, for believers and unbelievers alike, a great place for all of us to live. Seeking the peace of the city, listen to this, it means being a good neighbor. It means in the winter shoveling the sidewalk. It means um, cleaning the street. It means planting a tree. (laughs) It means feeding the poor. It means volunteering at the schools. It means greeting people at the store. It means driving safely and and helping people with car trouble. It, It means shutting down immoral businesses. It means embracing people of every ethnic background with the love of Jesus Christ. See, not only are we to seek the shalom of our city, but do you notice here, he also says, pray, <laughs> pray for the prosperity of our city. Do you know what, how astonishing this must have been to read this instruction from God To these people in exile? I mean, they had always been instructed by their prophets to pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. And now they're instructed to pray for the shalom of Babylon, of all places. Babylon, this pagan city filled with their enemy. How do we live as exiles? The lesson that Jeremiah would have for us is invest in the flourishing of our community despite its godlessness. Let me wrap this all up by going to a third story. This one comes from another famous prophet, Jonah. Now, if you're familiar with Jonah's story, I <laughs> um, guess is most of you are, you might say, well... <laughs> Sutton, how is uh, Jonah an exile? Well, it's not that Jonah was an exile, living in a foreign godless city, but rather he was called by God to go share God's message to a foreign godless city. Nineveh, foreign godless city, hated enemies of the Israelites, the Jewish people. And when you think about Jonah's story, it's an incredible story. Jonah, think about this, Jonah is called to go to a pagan city to avoid, so that that pagan city can avoid destruction, but he hates those pagans, so what's he do? <laughs> he runs away, and where does he end up? He ends up in a, on a boat filled with pagans. Think about this. And then he falls asleep on that boat during a storm, and he's awakened by those pagan sailors who tell him to call on his God to ask his God to help them from from sinking, to keep them from sinking. In other words, those pagan sailors ask Jonah to use his relationship with God to benefit the public good. One Scottish writer called the first chapter of Jonah the world rebuking the church. (laughs) Interesting. Now, eventually, Jonah goes to Nineveh. But when God turns away from destroying that city, what does Jonah do? He becomes furious, right? And he goes outside the city, and he sits on this hill overlooking the city, and he just waits, hoping to watch God blow up that city these people that he hates. And while he's waiting, what does God do? God gives Jonah this little plant that grows up and provides shade from that hot sun. And then God sends a worm that destroys that plant. And God's point, a point that he wanted to teach Jonah, and I think a point that he wants to teach all of us, It's a point about not caring about these people. These people that God created, these people and their welfare. And that whole story ends with God's rebuke. Here's how it ends. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? (laughs) That's a picture I want to suggest of us way too often. We simply don't like those unwashed pagans that live around us. Jonah went into that city, but he didn't love the city. Likewise, we don't love those around us who are lost and talk differently and have different attitudes and perspectives than we do. We can't stand those people who don't believe in the truth Instead of taking our time and our gifts and our money and and serving our city and loving those in our city, what we tend to do is we tend to huddle up in our own little subculture. See, here I think is the lesson of Jonah for all of us. Love those around you despite their unbelief. And here... (laughs) Here's a hard question, I think, for all of us, individually as well as corporately. Does the world recognize our love for them? Are we the kind of church (laughs) of which the world, our neighbors around us, say, you know what, we don't share a lot of their beliefs, but I can't imagine what would happen if First Free disappeared from that corner of 52nd and Chicago Avenue. They're such an important part of this city and, and this community. They, they give so much. They bless us so much. I wonder, do our neighbors say that about us? First Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So what do each of these stories have in common? Well, I think they instruct us. I think they give us some insights on how we can live as exiles in this world, in this post-Christian society that we live in. As God's people in exile, we are to neither withdraw or assimilate. Instead, we are to remain distinct but engaged. We are to be faithful despite the risk. We are to seek the flourishing despite the godlessness. We are to love despite their unbelief. Jesus tells a very um, interesting parable in Matthew chapter 13. I think it's a parable that's fitting to, uh, a fitting reminder to us who live as exiles. It's a parable of the wheat and the weeds. Maybe you remember that parable. Servants servants asked the master whether they should tear out the, the weeds that had unexpectedly grown up alongside the wheat. And the master replied, No. No, don't do that. Because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Friends... (laughs) We can look out on our world and there is no doubt that wheat and weeds are growing up side by side all around us. But Jesus tells his followers not to worry about pulling up the weeds. He'll take care of that later on. (laughs) Instead, he tells his followers those of us who are exiles living in this strange and foreign land. He tells us to be about growing the wheat. Might we be about growing the wheat? Let me pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your promises that you give us. Thank you for the promise that you are with us and guide us and direct us. Lord, today, as we have focused on Living as exiles and blessing our neighbors. Lord, we pray for our twin cities. We ask, as you instruct those Israelites in Babylon, we ask that you would bless our communities. We pray for those who have been elected and given the responsibility in our cities for leadership, give them wisdom, wisdom that comes from above. We ask for protection on those in our city that are innocent and vulnerable. Bring down those who would want to do violence and give us wisdom and give us grace as your people to seek the flourishing of our city. Teach us how to live as exiles. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.